Mate, what is going on? Welcome to episode 10 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this episode, I sit down and interview a lady who is such an inspiration. She's a kindergarten teacher. She's lost 63 kilos in her weight loss journey, and now she runs marathons. She's run marathons all over the world, and recently she went over to the Sahara Desert to tackle the famous Marathon de Sables. Seven marathons over six days in the Sahara Desert, carrying everything you need for that time. It's an amazing story, so let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Maddie Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. Hey, it's Maddie Graham here from the Exponential Performance Podcast. It is good to have you here. Now, thank you very much for all of those people who headed over to iTunes and have left me a review and a rating. If you haven't done this, it would be greatly appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and uh, leave this podcast a rating and a review. This is just going to help this podcast rate better and hopefully make it sustainable into the future by spreading the love. Now, a quick question for you. I am going to endeavor to keep the podcasts a little shorter to make them a little bit more easy to listen to and digest. I've had some feedback that the hour mark is a little long for some people and they would prefer a shorter podcast. So with that in mind, if you can please post a comment below on what do you feel the optimal length for the Exponential Performance Podcast would be. Some feedback around that would be greatly appreciated. 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour. What? How long would you like to see this podcast go for? And finally, if you have any questions or topics you'd like to see covered in the Exponential Performance Podcast in the future, please head over and leave, leave me a voice question over the Exponential Performance Coaching website. Simply record your question and I will do my best to include it in future episodes. So without further ado, we are going to have a talk to Jan Taylor. Jan is from a little place called Wyndham just outside of uh, New Zealand's southernmost city in Vicargill and she is a kindergarten teacher and she's got an amazing story. She's never been much of a sports person. In fact, she says that she avoided physical exercise, physical activity, sport at school and through her early years. She put on a lot of weight, as often happens when you have kids and family life and work. And then she decided to make a change. As you'll hear, she lost 63 kilos and started running one power pole, one lamppost at a time. And now she's starting to run marathons. She's run marathons all over the world. And now she's recently just got back from Marathon de Sables, which is an absolute epic adventure in the Sahara Desert, which encompasses, I think it's about seven marathons over six days in the desert 
obviously sand dunes, rocks, scorpions, snakes, the rest of it. So without further ado, that's enough from me today. Let's jump into the interview with absolute legend Jan Taylor. So um, thanks very much for for coming on and, and joining us. So do you just want to, you know, get started and give everyone a bit of a background about, you know, your story because it's it's an amazingly inspirational story. Um, about, what, about nine years ago now I um, lost weight. I lost 63 kgs in weight. And during that process... Um, I was encouraged to exercise, which I've never done before. Even at school, I avoided exercise like the plague. And um, I tra- that's tra- it was a real struggle to me because I um, didn't know how to get started. And it was actually my father who told me just to walk to the gate. And when I got to the gate, to walk to the next lamppost, which is basically how I got started and even into running. But it started the same way, where after I felt I was walking 5Ks a night and then decided I might just run one lamppost. And that was the start of me getting into running, um, which I'd never even thought of before possibly be able to do. So it's amazing. So you lost you lost sixty three kilos. Yeah, sixty three kilos one day short of a year. Far out. And how did you do that? How what was the, the process apart from the progress of exercise that you just talked about? Um, it was a process of looking at what I was eating. Basically, for me, it was my portion sizes. I was eating as much as what my husband was eating, who was a shearer and a farmer, um, who was exercising all the time and needing to eat you know, pretty big meals. And I was eating the same amount, but not having any physical exercise. And at that time, I was also studying, so I wasn't really doing a lot of anything other than sitting, reading books and sitting still. So portion sizes was a big part of just cutting down what I was eating and the amount I was eating. Once you lost uh, lost the weight and sort of gained this, you know, uh, interest in running, you started to run marathons. How many marathons yeah. have you run since then? Because it's quite a staggering number. Yes, I've actually lost count, actually. I was getting up to sort of around about the 20, 20 more marathons now. Yeah, so the extent where I've actually lost count. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I suppose it's a good thing to be able to lose count of. Yes, yes. Sometimes it's a good thing because then it also, then you're not also counting how much money it costs you. That is true, that is true. And so you've run marathons all around the world as well. Do you want to run us through some of those that you've been in? Yes, I've, um, my very first one was the Paris Marathon, um, and that was... Um, I didn't, that was quite an achievement, it was my very first marathon and it was quite an interesting run because they offered wine and cheese halfway around and offered to have your legs massaged by nice Frenchmen which encouraged you to stop all the time but yeah, no, that was an amazing race and then did the um, Great Wall of China and the um, Inca Trail Marathon in Peru which was a real big step up for me because it was quite a major um, um, altitude climb and they had lots of stairs and just last, uh, March last year did the Antarctica Marathon, but unfortunately it got called off halfway through, so I wasn't able to. I did a half marathon, but not a full marathon. So that was all part of your um, seven marathons on seven continents. 
and so you've yes. and you've still got to tick off the Antarctica one because it that's it right. didn't quite get there. So yeah, that's an amazing. But you've run seven half marathons on seven continents around the world. That's right. Yeah, amazing. Yes. <laughs> so, what ever made you decide to go over to the Sahara Desert and compete in the Marathon de Sables? I think that was the next challenge after the seven marathons on seven continents. I'd read about the Marathon de Sables and heard about it from different people and while I've been um, and, you know, doing the different events and it sounded like an awesome challenge and it sounded like a really well run race. So um, yes, it was, had been sort of sitting there at the back of my mind for a while and sounded like the next step in the journey along the way. So just for those that aren't aware of the Marathon Disciples, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of what it actually is? Because it's not like going to Paris and running the Paris Marathon. It's almost the complete opposite to that. Yes. Uh, the Marathon Disciples is a self-supporting stage race, which means you've got to carry everything that you require for the duration of the race, which is run over... Um, six days um, and it's like a marathon a day every day and one day is a two-day stage which is um, uh, eight, normally run about 80 to 90 k's and the entirety of the race is 250 k's. So you're carrying everything you require except for water which they give you along the way. So the, the name Marathon Disciples is sort of quite misleading because it sort of sounds like it's just one marathon but in fact it's multiple marathons, almost almost seven marathons over six days, isn't it? That's right, yes. And also in, in a very um, extreme conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those that aren't familiar with the Sahara Desert, can you just give us a quick rundown on uh, what sort of conditions you were going to face or you, that you did face? Um, most days got up to over 54 degrees in heat which was extremely hot. Um, you could feel the heat coming through your shoes at times. Um, some people's shoes actually were melting. Wow. Um, the terrain ranged from like just plains of quite rocky ground to being in sand dunes, the um, other, to actually climbing mountains. And stay, this year, they call it the um, Jebel um, Olaf, the El Olaf, of Jebel, which is, we called it the Jebel Awful. It was always in every marathon to start with every year, but this year they made it to us, well, they made us do it twice, which they've never done before. Far out. So, it, I mean, that, that in itself is incredible, going to marathon disciples and, and, and doing it. But then, you know, coming from your background of not really ever being physically active, losing 63 kilos, and then signing up for what is often termed the hardest race on earth. Yes, that <laughs> was um, a lot of people were quite astonished and had to do quite a bit of convincing in the family and also the medical professionals to let me go. So it's amazing, quite a How did you prepare yourself for heading over to the Sahara for the Marathon Disciples? I think the biggest preparation was going up to Hawaii and using all my gear and challenging myself up at Hawaii on terrain that I wasn't familiar with. Um, particularly Breast Hill was, to me, the biggest preparation for um, the Marathon Sables because it was so, that was technical, but so was so much of the race. And the mental preparation of being out there on my own 
um, overnight was the, that time up in Hawea was the best preparation I had for the Marathon Disciples. Yeah, so you came up to Lake Hawea where we were on based and we sort of ran a little bit of a training camp for you up here which involved sending you out you know, daily on quite long sessions but then also overnight sessions and there were a couple of interesting overnighters, weren't there? Yes, as if you purposely planned them. One was um, down Minaret Station where I had an encounter with um, a wild pig who was in, interested in my pack, which um, was pretty frightening. He finally did go away with, I don't know whether to run or scream at this pig, but it just sat there and eventually did go away. But then the possum came down and tried to take the pack as well. So it didn't give much steep that night. <laughs> and the second night out, <laughs> um, at, it was really windy and I had trouble finding somewhere to... Um, Sleep up at um, up at Grandview, and and um, it started to rain. Where it got so wet and windy, the water was running through um, down to my sleeping bag. So I had to at three o'clock in the morning get up and try and find the hut, which was which took about um, an hour to two hours. Knowing the hut was somewhere on the trip, but didn't really know how far away I was from it, which for me was also quite a challenge during that in the dark and extremely windy, wet conditions. Yeah, you had me worried that night, Jan. I wasn't exactly sure how you were getting on up there, but I was quite pleased I wasn't up there with you, to be honest. <laughs> yes. So um, leading up to the event, uh, you you were getting in, in you know, good condition. We were getting everything ready, but then there was a, a few problems at home before before you headed away that sort of compounded and made everything a lot harder than you know, normally it would have been. How did you ex- How did you work through those experiences? Because those in themselves were, you know, big challenges. Yes, Andrew, my husband, getting so sick um, and requiring to have heart surgery just before I went um, was a major challenge. And I think even though I wasn't doing much physical um, preparation mentally, it was a major um, physical, mental challenge for me getting through those times. And I think it was good prep, good preparation too, just when we had got through his surgery and him coming out the other side, um, realising that that mental preparation was also good preparation for marathon disciples, even though it wasn't actually running or doing anything towards the race itself. And did it change the way you approached the event in itself and that, uh, did it give you added motivation that, you know, when you were there on the ground that this was going to be something that you just battled for as hard as you could? Yes, um, it changed um, most probably my... Um, I realised the family were so supportive of me wanting to... of wanting me to go and do it. Um, prior to Andrew getting sick, um, I suppose we hadn't really thought about it a lot other than I was going, but... I was a bit of a challenge of do I go or not, but the whole family got stuck in behind me and said, yes, you must go. And so that sort of gave me more determination to try to go over there and do my best into um, knowing that they were totally behind me and wanting and supporting me from home. Yeah, that's amazing because, I mean, it would have been a pretty good reason to just throw in the towel and say, oh, well, it's too hard basket. You know, my husband's just had heart surgery. I'm probably just going to stay at home with him, you know. And that would have been a perfectly fine, perfectly (laughs) fine and acceptable uh, excuse, if you like, but it was the complete opposite to what you did. 
Yes, yes, I could have been easily, it would have been very easily, I had lots of options to pull out, like even from insurance-wise, I had to make that big call when we were cancelling Andrew's side of the trip, whether I was still to go or not, and I had to make my mind up, were you going or not, and that was a big step, and okay, right, I am definitely going now, and I had to confirm that. So once your, well, this preparation obviously took time, but what gear did you take with you? What 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 do you take into the desert for seven days? That is the major um, dilemma and most probably the biggest discussion on all the Facebook um, messenger sites around um, this race is the gear and weight. Um, I ended up taking my using the uh, NDS bag, um, which is specially designed for marathon disciples. Um, but a lot of, there are so many different options you could take. Um, the lot, I got a really good light sleeping bag, which was excellent. It was really, really light and compact. Um, and most everything else was basically the compulsory gear. You had to carry, you, it was optional to carry a cooker. You could have just um, had your food cold, but I opted to carry a cooker so I could heat the um, water for my um, backcountry meals. Um, and other than that, it was down to your torch and your, um, I think, the compulsory gear, which is things like your, um, you know, compass and road books and um, safety pins and things like that, which was just the, the normal mandatory gear that you take, except for the venom kit, which was for the snakes and the scorpions, just in case you came across a scorpion or a snake and got bitten by one. And that was just um, like a wee, like a wee suction syringe, wasn't it, to suck out venom? Yeah. Just a wee suction pump. Yes, that's right. So when you're describing this gear and, and seven days of food that you've got to take with you, you know it's quite easy to imagine that stuffed in like your normal size tramping or hiking pack. But for the marathon disciples, the wee, the bag that you took was a you know almost smaller than your standard school bag. Just like a little backpack, all of the stuff fitted in. How did you fit it all in there? It took a lot of um, manoeuvring around and um, not cutting back and um, cramp and a lot of work. I remember spending the morning with you, Matty, just trying to get the food and the gear into the pack. And I think it took us half a day. It was quite a quite an operation getting everything down to just getting in there and no more. Yes, did. Um, it was definitely a tight fit. It was a, it was amazing how much you can fit in such a small bag um, when you are really careful about what you're planning to take. Yes, and I think the other thing that was essential about the gear was making, that you taught me was um, knowing where it was exactly where in your pack. It was having a place for everything in it, and that was um, a really good tip as well. So speaking of food, you've got to carry seven days of food with you. What what do you carry, and how do you make it all fit in there? Um, I was fortunate that Sarah Richardson helped me, a sports nutritionist, and she made a special breakfast up for me, which was we called it a posh porridge, which had things like M and M's in it and dates and apples, in, including your porridge, um, which we tried to get as much um, calories into as lighter weight. Uh, breakfast as we could. During the race, um, was it mainly scroggin, and we had two types of scroggin. We had sort of like a savoury scroggin with your chips and pretzels and things like that, and then um, our sweet scroggin was just your normal scroggin with nuts and M&Ms and chocolate and 
um, our fruit and things. And then for tea was backcountry meals, which we'd had a double serving of backcountry meals, as well as a recovery drink each at the end of each day. And so what are what are backcountry meals for those that aren't, aren't aware of them? Uh, backcountry meals are dehydrated meals, which are made up of things like spaghetti bolognese, which is dehydrated, you add water to it, and it um, becomes um, like a, um, it becomes normal food. Now, some people ate a coal, which meant it didn't totally rehydrate, but um, I actually cooked, added hot water to it, which made it quite a nice meal. So how much water were you getting each day, Jan? Because that's something that's provided by the race organiser, isn't it? Yes, and quite strictly um, controlled. So um, on a, um, they call it a liaison stage. A liaison stage is under 42K, so it'll be about 30 to 40Ks. We were given 10 and a half litres of water. So each morning we got a litre and a half, and then at each checkpoint we were given then um, anywhere between a litre and a half and three litres, depending on how far that next, the following checkpoint was going to be. And at the end of each race we got three litres. So um, there wasn't a lot of water, and the water, I think at times I ran out of water. It was just because of the heat and um, the terrain that we were on. So yeah, at times we were being pretty desperate for water. Did you do you feel like you needed needed more water? Obviously, if you ran out of it. Um, at certain at certain times during the race, I did. Yes, um, you might have only just got to the next checkpoint in time to get to the next um, to get water. I actually carried um, lots of people when we were given two bottles of water won't carry the two bottles. Um, where I had a front had a pouch on the front which I could actually put a bottle of water on, and I always carried that extra bottle of water. Um, and normally used it and needed it. Yeah, okay, okay. Once you were underway, how did the first few days go out there? Um, the first day went really well. Um, it wasn't as hard as what I thought, but then I was warned that if the first day went well, then you can guarantee that day two and day three could be quite hard, which they were. That's when we had to do the um, this mountain. And... Um, Within that, it wasn't just one. On day two, we had um, quite a few mountains to climb, as well as that last one, um, which was when we talk about a mountain, we climbed up this um, up to the top of this mountain, and then we had to go down using a rope down rocks and then down this big uh, whole lot of sand, sand to the bottom, which was quite scary going down using the rope. But what I didn't realise that we, next day we had to go back up again, we had to pull ourselves up the rope over the rocks, which I hadn't sort of contemplated on doing. I didn't even know if I could do it. Um, so it was quite a challenge to get on day three to have to turn around and have to do it again going back the other way. Wow, that's um, that sounds intense. Yes, we hadn't realised we were into, didn't realise into rock climbing or ropes and things like that. Um, that wasn't something I had anticipated, but in, in something I hadn't um, trained for it was quite quite scary. There's no crampons or anything. Just pulling yourself up with this rope. It was quite amazing. And so I'm not sure if we've, we've touched on it, but what did you? How did you sleep um, each night? So you've obviously got your sleeping bag with you. What did you sleep in or under? Or um, I had a, a bedding mat which was uh, sort of folded up like a concertina, and it was um, yeah, that was the um, the main source of 
they had a, um, a carpet down the, on the ground and then you had your bedding mat on top and then your sleeping bag and then just used um, end up having like, your long johns and a um, top uh, polyprop top and sleeping and then you had a roof over you what was was it a tent or a shelter of some sort a, it's more of a shelter it didn't have any side it didn't have, it had sides on two sides but it was open um, at each end so the wind could blow in and the sand could blow in but um, it was a shelter of the sort and were you in there by yourself or were you, did you share that with other races uh, we shared it with um, other races so your tent mates became your family and they were quite an important part of the of your event um, there was sort of like a tradition where those that come in first uh, set the tent up so they could try and get the rocks out of the, um, from under the carpet and help those that could come in um, later and so I was very thankful to have some amazing tent mates who when I came in they took my pack I went, I went over to get my feet sorted and by the time I came back my sleeping bag was out and my meal was cooked so um, yeah it was just amazing we had amazing tent mates and they really made the race Wow, yeah, I mean, I imagine that it makes such a huge difference. Oh, definitely. You know, it's such an important part of the race is your your tent mates. So sort of on to day four, I guess, we sort of talked about those first few days, and and day four was the big one. Do you want to tell us, talk us through that, because it's an absolute epic. Yes, that was um, my most frightening time. What I was, I was most scared of was that day four because I thought I didn't know how I was going to go on, particularly after day two and three had been so hard, and I wasn't sure how day four was going to go. But um, I just had to look at it as us going from checkpoint to checkpoint and no further, just getting to the first checkpoint and then to the next one without looking too far ahead. Um, when we got into night, um, they had it wasn't too hard. I was worried about how I was going to see the... Um, where to go, but they actually had um, the glow sticks, so you could actually see the track quite clearly, and if not, I got down to what scene where footprints were on the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I didn't actually stop and sleep at any stage. I had a bit of a stop at checkpoint four, mainly to get my feet looked at, because they were getting pretty sore, and, um, but then and I had a meal there, I actually cooked my tea there, um, and, but then carried on. Part of, those, part of that day, they talk about they style the next bit is going to be sand dunes. Well, it was 13 k's of just solid sand dunes. It was just sand dunes from one checkpoint to the next, which was a bit of a shock. It was really hard going, but fortunately did that in sort of the mid um, mid to early morning, so it was cooler. Because the next day was really hot. Wow. So this day four, how long was the stage? Because this was the big stage. How long was it? Uh, 84 k's. 84 kilometres. And well, that was about how far you've gone in total already hadn't it so day one two and three was how that would have been added up about the same was it yes yeah it would have been about the same so you're doing two back-to-back marathons in the desert through the night with no rest yes how long how long um, did that end up taking uh 33 hours it was um yeah it was quite a long day (laughs) 33 hours yeah. Amazing. And there's an amazing video of you coming into the finish of that stage, and I'll post that over on the show notes at the Exponential Performance Coaching website. Uh, it's it's phenomenal just to see you coming into the finish after 33 hours out in the desert by yourself. 
And that was most sort of the highlight of the race for me was actually coming into that finish line with all that support. It was just absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, I didn't realise that that would happen and just having everyone out there cheering for you and coming in was just absolutely incredible. What goes through your head when you're out in the desert for 33 hours by yourself? Um, I think... Um, the family and just as I thought of the family and times, um, you know, just pushing through because sometimes we actually got really hard and you're pretty sore and pretty tired. Um, so just and also thinking of the just getting to that next point because um, I just felt that I couldn't think any further ahead than that next checkpoint. So um, yeah, just pushing through those um, to, to the next checkpoint. So you just have to get to that next checkpoint and not think any further. Oh, yeah, I mean, you've got to break it down, don't you, into into small pieces, but 84 kilometres in, in 33 hours out in the desert by yourself at night as well, it, it I just can't really get my head around it, Jan. It's such an yes. impressive effort. <laughs> it was at times a bit scary because particularly when I couldn't see where to go next and having to rely on just looking at the sea and looking at people's feet. Um, with people who have gone before you, as I... I didn't resort to getting my compass out because I didn't want it. I didn't need to, but I was actually at the point where I thought that I might have to do that. So after that day four, you say you've, you've been out there for 33 hours, you come in and you, you get some time to recover, is that right? Um, not a lot of time because by the time I came in um, and then um, what happened was that my feet were pretty um, pretty blistered, so I had to go to the... Um, what's called Doc Trotters, which is the um, medic tent to get my blisters sorted. I think I got back to my tent at 8 o'clock at night and we're starting the marathon stage at half past 7 the next morning. So there wasn't a lot of turnover time from finishing to starting the next day again. Wow. Some of the, some of the races who finished it a lot earlier may, have, may get the whole day off, yep. but um, because I was later finishing, I didn't get that downtime. Pretty much got 12, 13 hours or so. Yes. Wow. And I think understatement of the year is that your feet were pretty sore. That photo that you sent me from the hospital after, you know, as as about a week after the race was horrendous. And if you don't mind, I'll post that photo as well because it <laughs> it it's such an insight into how you must have been feeling. And then also you wake up in the morning after that big eighty four kilometer day. What was going through your head? How were you feeling? So you've still got another marathon to run that day. Um, I was feeling my feet were pretty, um, very painful. I had struggled getting my feet in my shoes, even though I had um, got a half size bigger shoe than I normally did. Um, the my support socks that I was wearing had to be cut off the night before, so I couldn't wear them that day. And um, yeah, my teammates were surprised that I was going to be actually starting because my feet were such a mess the, night, the day before. So, um, yeah, it was pretty painful that last day. And talk us through that last day. That last day, um, most probably I started off um, dehydrated so I hadn't rehydrated enough the night before from the longest day. And so, um, yeah, it was a, a big battle getting through to each checkpoint that day. Up to that day, I managed to get to the cutoffs and the checkpoints pretty well without having to worry. But this particular day, I was struggling with my feet and being dehydrated, um, and I'm mostly not fully fueled properly. I was struggling to get to each checkpoint and just getting there just on time. 
um, I got to the got through the final up to the, just about, got to the last checkpoint, which meant I got through the sand dunes, and all I had was um, a gravel road basically, which was to get back down to the um, the finish line, but started to um, become um, disorientated and could feel myself wobbling across the road. But I was by myself, and I didn't think anyone could see me. But obviously they were, they were the spotters out watching, and it was one the minutes there was a car down, and they stopped and said, no, you can't carry on any further. And by that point, I think my temperature was 39, I was over 39 degrees. Yeah, so you were, you were getting really hot, and you know, you know, heat stroke or heat exhaustion, as it's often termed, and they pulled you out of the race with 11 kilometres to go. Yeah. What was going through your head then? I just thought I felt so close yet so far away. I just thought I would have really loved to have finished, but knew that that I wasn't going to be able to. When when you left New Zealand to to head over, what were your expectations on yourself? Um, I didn't know if I could get through the first day. You know, realistically, I was going. To, you know, I really didn't know if I could do the, even get through one day, let alone two. So I was actually quite, um, I suppose, amazed that I actually got through as far as I did and was actually quite thrilled as, that I got as achieved as much as I had done. Um, so deep down it was gutting not to finish the race, but I was also quite um, satisfied with having gone as far as I did under the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, getting through that 84-kilometre stage, that... When I was because I was watching online here very closely to see how you were getting on, I was like, far out. If she can get through that big day, then hopefully she can get back up again and, and you know finish it off. But you're just so close, and you know ran out of time with those cutoffs and you know getting heat stroke. And it's it's almost you think that the adventure's over now, but by the sounds of it, this was just the start of the adventure. So. Once you got pulled out of the race, what happened? Tell us, tell us about that. Um, I got, they took me to the medical tent, so I was in the medical tent overnight, where they had to rehydrate me with IV fluids, and then um, we went back to Azizat, which is the town, uh, the town where we were um, based overnight. And I had to go then, once I got back down there, they were going to reassess me at 7 o'clock to redress my feet so I could go home. But when I went back to the medics that night at the hotel, um, they decided that my feet were um, too bad and that I had to be transferred to Casablanca Hospital, which was a 12-hour journey in an ambulance with just an ambulance driver and myself. Um, and then once I got to Casablanca Hospital, it was um, a different story altogether because, of course, I couldn't speak the language. They spoke in either French or Arabic. And um, my husband, of course, Andrew, wasn't able to travel. He was meant to have been with me, but wasn't with me at that point because he was sick. And so um, they were quite, the whole time they kept saying, where my asking for my husband, where my husband was. And, um, yeah, that was... They, the treatment was quite a different experience to what we have in New Zealand because there's the expectation that your husband will care for you while you're in hospital. So it was pretty scary at times and I was also being sedated as well. So we're not really sure why, the, what treatment I did get because we didn't get any notes from the hospital. Um, but it was five days of pretty scary times of not really knowing what was going on and 
being sedated, I think I got IV antibiotics, but I couldn't be sure, and um, not getting washed or cared for while you're over there, or even being fed. And wow. it wasn't until a nurse came from, the, the insurance company got a nurse to fly from Paris to escort me back to New Zealand. But to get back, I had to be wheelchair back fit, and because when she arrived, they had sedated me that morning, so I couldn't even sit up in bed, so she had arranged for an ambulance to transport me to the airport, and then she put me in a wheelchair as soon as we got out of the ambulance to get me onto the plane that, so I could get home. That is phenomenal. So for five days, you were pretty much just sedated in a hospital room, not fed, and almost just because your husband wasn't with you. Yes, yeah. And is that largely a cultural thing, or was that a... I you think know, it was a cultural thing, yes, very much so. Far out. That is, I, I, don't even, I don't even have words to describe it. It's phenomenal. And, yeah, and looking back, it was pretty scary. Like, you sort of felt quite alone and quite isolated, yes, and not being able, particularly when you couldn't understand what was happening or being able to speak the language or get any help. So you finally get back on the plane, get home to New Zealand, and that's not the end of the story, though. No. Um, when, I, when we finally got back to Invercargill, um, I knew that I needed to get some medical help because my feet were still extremely sore and really swollen. So, and uh, they actually, even though I, did that, I had no shoes on, just bandages, they felt as if they were going to explode. So um, I ended up in Southern Hospital for two and a half weeks, um, my leaves were so swollen that they were swollen right up to my thighs, and so yeah, it was. And I was also um, malnourished and needed to have um, protein to build up my protein levels again, as well as um, you know being quite run down as well in other areas. It's it's phenomenal, Jan. I mean, I've talked about on this podcast before about you know pushing through to that next level and hardening up and you know, just going one more step, but you are just living proof, luckily you're living after this <laughs> big adventure, how how did you push yourself so hard, so far that, you know, that your body was, it, it gave up, a lot of people would have stopped a long time before that and called it a day? Um, most probably, it's quite funny because, um, one of the things someone said at the race was you don't you don't um it's sort of like you don't give up an American service just for blisters. So I still thought, oh well I've only got blisters on my feet, it can't be that bad. So I just kept on pushing forward even though it got to the stage where it's so painful to put my feet on the ground. Um I mostly didn't realise how serious my feet were because you couldn't really see them. And um it wasn't until um, yeah, my daughter saw them at the hospital that she was mortified. You know, she said she couldn't even tell my feet were feet. They were so swollen. Um, and, yeah, they were, um, even you know, the doctors coming around were quite amazed at the status of them. So um, you yeah, mostly didn't realise how bad or how far I had actually pushed myself, but you just kept on pushing through just to try and get to the end. So particularly when I'd come so far and got so close. I mean, th three weeks, you know, th three plus weeks in hospital, um, you know, a trip around the world, some scary times in a foreign hospital. I guess the big question is, you know, was it was it worth it? Yeah, 
Um, yeah, the race was was worth it. It was absolutely fantastic. I actually enjoyed every minute of the race. Like the, it was just the um, support from everyone, right from the, you know, the, the other competitors right through to the event organisers. You know, they're all so supportive and encouraging. And even the elite athletes, they start later on the um, longest day in the marathon stage. And when they come through, they pat you on the back and tell you to keep going. It's like it's, you sort of feel like you're one big family. It's actually an amazing event to take part in. If I hadn't have had the post-event experience, I might have been tempted to go back and do it again. I guess that answers the next question. Would you ever go back and do it again? <laughs> Most probably not. If I hadn't have been so sick post-race, I might have been tempted. But um, no, I don't think I, after my experience in hospital over there, I don't think I would be tempted to go back. I mean, you've, you've obviously got so much out of it and, and pushed yourself to a level that, you know, is beyond anything you've been capable of pushing yourself to before. So, I mean, it's it's an amazing achievement in itself. Yes, I remember you showing me that DVD of those um, mountain bike riders, seeing that and seeing one of them in hospital thinking, well, who pushed themselves that far? <laughs> Not ever thinking that I'd end up in hospital. Yeah, yeah, that, that DVD, for anyone who's interested in, is 24 Solo. It's about uh, the World 24-Hour Mountain Bike Championships. A great, great watch. So, so Jan, what's what's next? What's next for someone who's been to the Sahara, who's been to Antarctica, who's been to China, Paris, um, South Africa? I mean, you've ticked off so many great adventures. What? How do you top this? I'm mostly looking at going back to Antarctica to finish that marathon. Or mostly be the next one. Just still one finish business back in Antarctica. So Which is the com, you know, the complete opposite to uh the marathon de Sables, eh? In terms of temperature. Yeah. That's right. Fantastic, Jan. Hey, thank you so much for uh for joining us today. And if anyone's got any questions for Jan, um feel free to post a comment, let us know. And uh, if you do have any questions, we can always get Jan back on for another question and answer session. So thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I hope you found that insightful. You'd have to agree with me. She is such an incredibly inspirationally inspirational lady. Just the ability to get out there and, and get into it. She's not the fastest one in the field, but she will just keep going until she, one, gets to the finish line or gets pulled off the course and taken to hospital. I guess the old uh, adage of go hard or go home doesn't really apply to Jan. It's either go hard or go to hospital or go hard and then go to hospital. If you've got any questions about um, Jan's expedition in, at the Marathon Disables, feel free to send them in to me. Leave her a comment below whether you're listening on SoundCloud or YouTube. That'd be greatly appreciated. And remember, if you've got any questions for me or topics you'd like to see in future podcasts, please head over to the Exponential Performance Coaching website and leave me a voice message a voice question and also to access everything from today's show notes including a few little video clips and the photos uh, from marathon disables from jan head over to the show notes at exponentialperformancecoaching.com 
under the podcast tab, head down to episode 10. So until next week, get out there, train hard, but most importantly, train smart. I'll talk to you next week.